is Joel Repic. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont Alliance Church, and I hope I have the opportunity to get to know you soon if I don't know you. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 this morning, so you can get there in your Bibles or it will be on the screen. I have a big announcement for you all this morning. Um, uh, we have been in this sermon series through the first four books of the New Testament that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for three years now. We've been journeying through this, just talking about Jesus. We've taken some breaks along the way, but today is the last sermon of that sermon series. So we did it. You stuck with us. Some of you haven't even attended Crestmont for as long as that sermon series was, but why don't we just thank Jesus for, for uh, the ways that he showed himself to us over this series, and I'm excited for what's coming next. Uh, the fifth book of the New Testament is a book called Acts, and actually when I first came on staff at Crestmont, uh, which now is about 10 years ago, I believe, um, that was the first series that we preached through together, and we just feel like it's time to revisit the book of Acts, which is really a story about how Jesus' presence continues with his followers through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm so excited to be talking about that with you. Um, and we're going to begin that sermon series in just a couple of weeks. And we'll take some breaks along the way there too. I don't know how long it will take us to get through it. Uh, we might take a break for the summer. Uh, we have some things planned but we're going to begin reading and studying the book of Acts together. So I'm really excited about that. But today, we're going to look at some of Jesus' final words that he said to his disciples before he ascended, before he literally lifted off the earth and went back to his Father in heaven. And the passage, if you're familiar with it, it's a passage that sometimes we refer to in the church as the Great Commission. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the mission that he's leaving for them. So we're going to begin in Matthew 28, verse 16. Sometimes it's our custom to stand in honor of God's word. If you'd stand with me, and I'll read this. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You may be seated. Uh, this is after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. We mentioned last week during our Easter celebration that Jesus appeared to very many of his disciples. There were many uh, eyewitnesses to the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. And then he gives them this mission. He says to them in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When you see that word authority in Scripture, you should also think of another word pretty quickly, and it's the word obedience. If you think about it, a police officer or a judge has authority, uh, ideally, Inasmuch as they are in obedience to the law of the land, right? Their job is to obey and to enforce, ultimately, the Constitution of the United States. 
and the law of the land. But their authority is an authority that comes from a higher authority, a greater authority. And Jesus is saying here, all authority has been given to me because Jesus per perfectly fulfilled the mission that his father had laid out for him. We read earlier on in this sermon series that Jesus said, I don't do what I want to do. I do what my father wants to accomplish. And Jesus lived his life, fulfilled the sacrifice on the cross in perfect submission to his father's will. And this is the source then of his authority. And Jesus is doing something remarkable in this passage. He's sharing that same authority with his followers, with his disciples. He's saying the authority that I've been given you now have to complete the mission. But it's not an authority to do whatever we want. It's not an authority to control other people. It's an authority to fulfill the mission in obedience to God's own plan and purpose. So all authority has been given to me, therefore go. It's a verb, and we're going to come back to that in a second. Therefore go and make disciples. A disciple is a follower, not just who uh, believes intellectually the teachings of the one that they're following, but who lives that out, who imitates their teacher. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you aren't the only disciples, there's going to be more. So go and make more disciples, multiply. Um, make these disciples in all nations. Uh, we make two extraordinary uh, claims about Jesus as followers of Jesus, and Christians all around the world make these claims that Jesus is both an exclusive and a universal savior. And depending on who you're talking to, depending on which group is listening, both of those claims are controversial in the day in which we live. First of all, that Jesus is an exclusive savior. What we believe and confess about Jesus is that he is the only way to the Father. I spent a couple of weeks not too long ago uh, in Southeast Asia with believers who either themselves or the churches that they're leading and ministering in are primarily people who have turned to Jesus from Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist backgrounds. And while they might acknowledge that there is some ethical overlap between the great world religions, nonetheless, they would, they would boldly claim that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's, it's a bold claim. Um, but I, I'm telling you, they aren't dying, they aren't suffering in the way that they are because they believe that there's many ways to God, right? They have encountered a person, and that person is Jesus, even as they love their neighbors who believe something different than them. Now, that's controversial in our day. That might raise eyebrows, cause people to snicker and sneer at us, but I promise you, we're not facing anything like my brothers and sisters are who, are who are claiming what they're claiming in the context in which they live. But we also believe that Jesus is not just an exclusive Savior, but that he's a universal Savior. And depending on who you're talking to, this is controversial too. Because what we're saying is, the person of Jesus Christ does not belong to white people of European descent. Right? The Jesus that we're talking about is not particular or just for a certain culture or a certain nation. We believe he is truly savior of the whole world. And while it's good to have affection for one's own nation, while it's good to seek the prosperity and blessing of one's own nation, we also believe that our allegiance is to a higher kingdom. And that that king has in view not just one nation, but the entire world to love, right? His love is for the entire world. 
and for every people. And so our bold claim is that Jesus loves to show up in all different kinds of cultures. And that might mean our worship customs can look radically different. This morning, Christians are worshiping all around the world. And I promise you, the ways in which we worship vary greatly from from uh, congregation to congregation. In our own family of churches, this morning in the United States, we're worshiping in almost 30 languages. And praise God, right? Because Jesus is king in every culture, right? He's savior for every group of people. Jesus tells us, baptizing them. This is the sign of being joined into the family. We have baptisms coming up, a public declaration of what God has done in our heart as we've met Jesus. He tells us to teach them to obey because as we've been talking about for the last three years, participation in the life of the kingdom of God is not just about believing certain things. It's about living certain things. It's a lifestyle. Following Jesus is a lifestyle of obedience. And then this promise, which we're going to focus in on this morning in just a bit, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God has a mission, and this mission is to redeem his creation. Um, That word redeem simply means to buy back. And the creation needs bought back because it was lost because of human rebellion and sin. We were talking about this last week. When the first humans and every person since them decided to rebel against God in their heart, it gave access to Satan, to the creation, to the good creation that God had created. This means that Satan illegally rules in the creation that God made, but God came up with a plan to buy back his own creation, to restore what had been lost. And although many things have been lost, at the center of that was the loss of the union of people with the God who created them. God was intent on restoring that. And of course, the whole story of Scripture, Scripture is so much more than just a list of rules or some good stories to learn a moral lesson from. It is an overarching story of God's activity and history, this plan of mission to buy back what had been lost. And at the center of this plan is a person, and his name is Jesus This universal, exclusive Savior who we believe is 100% God, 100% man, who lived a perfect life, sacrificed his life for us, was buried and now lives, and who we celebrate in this Easter season. Jesus is the center of that whole story. So he has a mission. If God has a mission, we have a mission too. And our mission is to participate in God's mission. We don't have our own mission. Our mission is connected to his. Our mission is to participate in this plan to redeem all of creation and to bring other people along with us. Right away, you see in this passage that the language of Jesus is for the multiplication of disciples, right? This isn't an exclusive family, right? We have an exclusive Savior, but the family's not exclusive. This is a universal Savior who's calling more and more and more people to himself. And so the family is growing, has been growing since the time that Jesus gave his disciples these words in Matthew 28. So God has a mission. We participate in this mission. And there's an urgency and an invitation to this mission that God gives us. First of all, there's an urgency to it. Because, friends, not everybody knows that God has a mission to redeem the world, to buy back the world. Um, If you grew up in the church like I did, 
It's easy to be apathetic to this reality that there are so many people who don't know. I was just in a part of the world where there are whole people groups who don't know anything about what we're talking about this morning. No one has ever told them. You know, in the nation of Nepal, where I was just a couple weeks ago, there was not one known follower of Jesus in the whole nation until 60 years ago. A whole nation where for hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years, nobody ever told them that there was a Savior who loved them, that there was a way to be reunited back to God. But friends, that's not just overseas. Increasingly, it is in our own backyard. Some of you have heard me share this story about how um, I was eating in a restaurant with a friend and this person who identified as a Wiccan witch sat down and started talking to us. And the reason she wanted to engage us was because she overheard us talking and she said, I was raised in Beaver County and I have not had one real conversation with a Christian. I don't even know what you believe. I don't even know what you're about. And see, she still wasn't sure about us and what we believed at the end of the conversation, but something in her was drawing uh, to us because she's hungry to know the story. And there's people right around, one of the great joys of my ministry has been to tell the story to people who honestly never had the story told to them. It's closer than we think. We can't take for granted that people understand and know the story. So there's an urgency to it, but there's also an invitation to it because, friends, we get to participate in the mission of God around the world. Um, I, I loved ministering in the part of the world that I was in just a couple weeks ago. And, friends, as I interacted with those pastors from Pakistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and India, um, I can tell you this. These are the days of the last and great harvest. We're living in them. And Jesus is coming back. You know, in America, we start talking about Jesus coming back as soon as things start to get a little bit uncomfortable, you know? We're like, oh, things are a little off. When I first went to the ministry, I had someone talking to me about this bad snowstorm that was coming in, and they said, Jesus is certainly coming back, you know? This is like a sign of the times. And listen, Scripture does tell us that hardships and persecutions will increase in the last days. I certainly saw that in my brothers and sisters, but here's what I also saw, a power-filled, spirit-filled, spirit-sanctified church who is overcoming by the grace of God and with love. And right now, it is mind-blowing, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists turning to Jesus Christ. An amazing move of God is happening around the world. Um, We get so murky here and distracted on the mission But spending just a little bit of time with my brothers and sisters where I was brings such clarity to what God is doing around the world. And here's the invitation. We get to be part of that. It's phenomenal. We get to be part of that. To the However it is that God links us to that, as a church, as individuals, we get to be part of that. It's an amazing thing. Now, as we've looked at these scriptures, we often apply to them four questions that we'll ask. The first is, who is God? Well, Jesus reveals himself in this passage both as the sent one. The Father has sent his Son to us in this plan to redeem his creation. But Jesus also gives a promise of his presence, and so he reveals himself again to us as Emmanuel, a word, a name, which means God with us. It's actually one of the first names that's uh, ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. 
Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm still going to be that. Um, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm going to come back again. But I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit, my very presence. And my presence is not just going to be with you, but inside of you. There's nowhere you're going to be able to go to escape from my presence. He is with us. So he sent and he's with us. And if that's who God is, then here's who we are, the question of identity. We are also sent because we're linked to this mission, but we are sent not alone, but with him. See, if he's Emmanuel, then we're linked to that reality too. Yes, we're sent, but we're sent with someone. We're sent with him to do what we wouldn't be able to do on our own. So what might God be saying to us today in this language about being sent and God being with us and us being with him. Well, first of all this, it's so clear in the passage that the command is to go. That's the verb, go. I want us to think about that little two-letter verb for a second and all that it implies for us to go because go means a lot of things. First of all, let me say this about the word go, that in the way Jesus is using it, go is a holistic word. We could define God's mission to redeem or buy back his creation, or sometimes we use other words like evangelism, telling the good news. Broadly, we could define this mission as this, doing good news wherever bad news has happened. And guess what, friends? There's a lot of bad news that's happened in the world. And so as we link ourselves to God's mission, we do say, demonstrate good news wherever bad news has happened in the world. So where there's injustice, we do justice. Where people's voices haven't been heard, we speak up for them, right? Where relationships have been broken, we seek reconciliation. Where people are hungry, we feed them. Where they're sick, we heal them, right? Where people don't know about the message of what God has done, we tell them the message. How can they know unless someone is sent to them to tell them? We participate in this going. And God has set his eyes in love on everything that is wrong and broken and messed up in the creation. And there is not one thing that's wrong that won't be made right in his love. And we get to participate in that, right? So go is a holistic word. Go is also an action word. In my house, there's a routine in the mornings to get the kids out the door to school, right? My two oldest. And I'm telling you, this routine does not change from day to day. The same basic things need to be done every single day, right? You must brush your teeth. You must fix your hair. You must put on socks, right? And yet I find myself every day saying, go get ready. Go. Go get ready. Go is an action word. What I'm I'm trying to communicate to my kids is, when I say go get ready, I'm saying do something, right? Don't just sit there, wait. And and, and inevitably, you know, the kids need to be school at 8.30. It's like 8.20. Hey, are you ready to go? And you can just tell. Hair's messed up. You can smell their morning breath. No socks on their feet. It's like, what is it? I said go, right? Go is an action word. It's a word that means that we are uh, to get involved in the motion of the kingdom of God and his plan and what he's doing. There's no, there's no um, uh, part of this mission that is inaction, 
uh, we're involved in praying and giving and going and participating. So it's an action word. Um, It's also a risky word. Uh, Let's be honest about this. That to go means we're leaving things behind that we very well might be comfortable with. And that we're going into a future with new realities and things that we haven't experienced before. But we're about to be in the book of Acts and we're going to see how those who went, who obeyed this command to go, faced all kinds of hardship. Spiritual warfare, opposition from people, all kinds of pain. The Bible is radically honest with the riskiness of this command to go. And this word go is also disorienting. Because when you go to a new place, right, Um, whether it's literally you move somewhere or you go into a new sphere of relationships, um, the newness of it often feels disorienting. Let me tell you a story about disorientation in the going. Uh, When Steve and I were in Nepal and Sri Lanka, and I've traveled some other places too, one of the most disorienting things about foreign travel uh, is bathrooms, all right? Like, you don't realize it until you visit other places in the world, but there's a certain way we do things, right? And you go to other places, and there's a certain way they do things. Like, I go to most places in the world, and sometimes there's no toilet paper at all. There's just that little spray thing. I don't know if you have seen that, but there's this little spraying thing. I'm like, I'm not sure how to use that spraying thing, right, the bathroom. So just complete honesty with you all. When Steve and I were in Sri Lanka... Uh, we were in this Christian retreat center. Now, this is a bathroom story. I'm sorry, but, you know. Uh, we're, in this, we're in this Christian retreat center where the pastors were meeting, and, of course, we're there from morning till night. You're going to have to use the bathroom. And more than once, Steve and I asked where the restrooms were. They pointed them out to us. We went to, a, we went to the restroom, and there's, this, there's these stalls with just two holes in the ground, right? And one hole looks like it goes outside, and one hole looks like it goes down to the drain, and... So Steve, Steve's in one stall, I'm in the next. I'm saying, hey, Steve, which hole are you using? You know? <laughs> What's this for? How's this supposed to work? You know? So for two days, we kind of work our way through it. And then one day, we're going to the restroom with someone else, and they say, no, guys, that's not the toilet. Those are showers. <laughs> they actually had American toilets in a room over. We just had to keep walking. We'd been peeing in the showers for a couple days at this Christian retreat center. That's what disorientation does for you. It throws you off. And, and this is exactly the stuff that we're afraid of in disorientation. is not having the answers, looking awkward, looking foolish, all of that. But here's something about the mission of God. It is always crossing barriers from one race to another race, from one socioeconomic class to another socioeconomic class, from the young to the old. It's always, you don't have to go around the world, I can just promise you, the mission is going to ask you to cross a barrier of some kind to that coworker, to that friend who is different than you, to that person in your neighborhood who you know is just so different than you. And there's a disorientation to that that makes us feel afraid and awkward makes us want to stay away from it. As a matter of fact, I think we shouldn't sugarcoat this word go at all. I think if we're going to be on the mission, we should be honest about the costs that are involved. Because you see, there's a reason, let's not be judgmental, there's a reason why so many Christians 
and why so many churches really aren't on the mission, why so many churches have just opted for religion or denominational identity or doctrinal protectionism. See, there's a reason why they've done that. There's a reason why so many Christians would rather just play the church game than actually participate in God's mission to redeem all of creation. Here's why. It's because it's really, really hard. And so we find ourselves failing at this going all the time. Jesus said to go, we find ourselves failing at it. I don't know about you, at least I do. I can be half-hearted in the holistic call. See, God's mission is holistic. The word go is holistic. It involves everything, but I can develop an indifference to the needs of other people. I can choose to just care about certain groups and not care about other groups and find a way to justify that in my mind and in my heart. See, I can run from the risk. I can be reluctant in the risk because it just feels scary. It feels safer to be where I've always been and to keep my life orderly. I don't want the disruption of that word go, of mission. I can, I can be apathetic in the action. Sometimes I'm just tired, folks. Sometimes I just don't feel like I have what it takes to engage the mission that God has called me to or has called our church to. And sometimes a disappointment can develop in us surrounding the disorientation because when we first hear God's call to the mission, our tendency very often is to exaggerate how awesome this is going to feel and to underestimate the real pain and cost that's going to be involved in it. And so later on, we find ourselves in a place of disorientation. Relationships are changing. Our life is changing. We're being called to new risks. And we're thinking, you know, this sounded better at the outset than it does now when I'm in the middle of this pain. This is why very many times we run from that word go, but the gospel is good news, and here's the good news, even in the command to go, that is ours because of Jesus. There's not just a command to go, there's also a promise that he will be with. See, he promises his presence to these disciples. He promises that he won't leave them. He promises that he won't abandon them. I said a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus never had to suffer without God's promises in view. See, all along the way, he knew the promises of his Father and he cast himself on those promises even as he suffered. Friends, if that's how it was for Jesus... That's how it is for us too. It's true for the sufferings that just come our way because we live in a broken and messed up world, but it is also true for the suffering that God asks us to willingly endure because of the mission. If God has asked us to hurt as part of the mission, and listen, love will almost always require that at some point. Love will almost always require a level of pain at some point. Even in that place of pain where I've willingly taken to myself pain in the going, there are promises to see us through. Here's one of the promises. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will not leave you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'm not going to leave you alone in that place. You know, when my kids, when my two oldest kids were younger, I can remember them climbing up. Sometimes they would climb up on these playground sets that would get you know, two or three levels high. And then 
And then it seemed like instead of wanting to like go all the way back down, they would just want to get down where they were at. And that required me being willing to catch them. And I can still, you know, picture my young kids, you know, standing on the edge, deciding if they're going to jump. I want to tell you what risk and mission is like. It is not like jumping off the top of the playground set just onto hard earth. If that's how it feels to you, if that's what you think it is, you've believed a lie. You've allowed Satan to come in and to tell you that God has called you to a mission, asked you to jump, and then he's going to abandon you. Here's what it's like. It's what I did for my kids. I caught them every time. Yes, it was a risk. It felt like a risk. You could see they had that pit in their stomach before they jumped, but they jumped into my arms every time. It's often the presence of God that pushes us off the playground set because he loves us, a little holy push, right? But then he's there to catch us. He won't push you off anything if he's not going to catch you on the other side, right? I remember a few years into what we were doing here in Aliquippa and what we were seeing happen at the church. I remember just feeling so discouraged and worn out. The mission seemed so much more glorious at the outset than it did just a few years in. You know, just discouragement. And you heard the College of Prayer got advertised in the announcement today. It's coming up again. The first College of Prayer gathering we held was here at Crestmont. We did it in the fellowship hall. It was, a, it was a new marker in us as a church learning to pray together. Some of you were there. And we got together on just this one night, and we prayed. I remembered weeping in front of some of you. Just all that pain. I couldn't hold it in. Just felt so tired in the mission. Just so worn out in the mission. Felt like I didn't have at all what it was going to take I remember crying and saying, God, you promised us a harvest. You said that if we didn't grow weary in doing good, that there would be a harvest in due time, whatever that harvest looks like. That's what you said. I just remember us seeking God's presence in a new way and claiming for ourselves that this promise was true, that Jesus was not sending us anywhere where his presence would not be with us. And I remember John, who was leading worship today, and his wife, Galfua, they came over to the house after, after that night of prayer. I, I don't know, even know if we had kids then. We must not have. We were still hanging out together late at night. And, <laughs> and, we, and John came over, and, he, and I remember John saying, this is how we make it. This is how we make it. I, I haven't been in ministry too long, but I know this. The secret to persisting in the mission is the presence of God. It's to value his presence more than anything else. See, I think our church has grown hungry for the presence. I think we're seeking the Holy Spirit, not because we're looking just for some cheap experience. Listen to me, church. We're not looking for some cheap experience or just for some emotional experience. We're asking the question, how do we as a people faithfully answer that call to go wherever he decides to link us, whether it's here in our own community or to the ends of the earth? How do we keep doing it? Because I can tell you now, the mission's going to surface your anger, your pettiness. It's going to surface your sin. The mission is good for that. And we need the presence of God. We need the presence of God when all of that stuff begins to surface. And as we begin to value his presence, something amazing begins to happen. Uh, we find our healing in the holistic nature of that word go. It's actually in the going that we get healed. 
of our insecurities and our fears. God uses all of that. We thought we were going to help other people. We find that God uses the whole mission to heal us along the way, that God does not pass over our own hearts in the mission. He's not looking just to use us like robots. He's looking to heal us as he uses us to heal. It's amazing. We find, we find that in the action, we find that there's power, that that God has not left us alone. We're going to spend the next few months in the book of Acts that God has given us his presence. There's power in the Holy Spirit for this mission. The book of Acts is really not a story about how amazing the disciples were after this moment that we just read. It's a story about how an extraordinary God can use ordinary people when they're filled with the power and presence of God. And stories begin to happen of God's goodness. And how he loves people. He begins to activate people in the mission. We find that there's reward in the risk. See, see, so much of the stuff that felt like it hurt to give up, we find actually that God blesses us way more when we're just willing to let go of those little things. And we find that even in the place of disorientation, that God forms in us delight in the mission. Can I just say this, just as we close here, friends? The worship team could come forward. I just want to say this. Let's not talk about the mission at Crestmont like it's all pain and suffering. I think we got to be honest about what the word go entails. But I just also want to say this, that if you grew up in like missionary sending churches, which this church has been one for a long time, there's this line we kind of joke about, like, don't ask, don't tell God you won't go to Africa because that's exactly where he'll send you, right? And we, we paint God as a contrarian, who's waiting to mess with us, who's waiting to send us exactly to the place where we would hate to go, you know, like wherever that is. But what if this is the truth? What if as God dismantles all that stuff in us, we actually learn to delight in the mission? What if God knows what we were created for? And what if some of the stuff that we spend so much time holding on to is actually not what we were created for? And even though it hurts to let go of it. God only has deeper satisfaction on the other side. It's an amazing thing. The more I live my life on mission, it is true, the more pain is involved, but here's another thing. I'm more satisfied than ever. I'm more satisfied than ever. More joy in my life than ever. Because friends, this is what I was created for. Just as I close, uh, I just want to share this one thing with you. I heard recently, I don't know if it's legend or history, that Vikings, when they would land on a distant shore, that they would, one of the first things they would do is burn their ships because they knew that what was ahead was peril and danger. And they knew that when it got hard, they would be tempted to abort the mission. They would be tempted to leave. As soon as things started to feel disoriented or risky or like they couldn't keep up with the action, they were going to feel like aborting the mission. So they would burn the ships. Friends, some of us, you know why for some of us, joy seems so elusive in the Christian life? It's because we're negotiating between the God, the call that God has put on our lives and all this other stuff we're trying to hold on to. And I'm telling you, whether what we're trying to hold on to is our culture's version of success our current friendships and relationships, I can tell you, relationships change on mission. They change on mission. There's a pain in it. 
can tell you whether we're trying to hold on to what we used to be or how things were or the glory days. or There's all kinds of stuff we try to hold on to. But as long as we try to negotiate between the ships and God's call, we won't find joy. Here's how you find freedom. Burn the ships. It really, it really takes away all that temptation. You don't even have to think about it anymore. It's like, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in to whatever God is calling me to. And even if it's hard, you will find joy begin to rise up in your spirit in that place because that stuff is weighing us down. I was thinking about that whole burning the ship thing and it occurred to me, often God will just go ahead and burn the ships for you. <laughs> you, know? you know, one of, one of uh, the descriptions of his presence is fire. It burns. And he said, I will be with you. My fire will be with you. He'll burn some ships because he's so committed to us finding joy in the mission. So look, look, we have to grieve our losses. Grieve whatever you've had to give up for God's mission. But you just reach this point where you know there's no going back, friends. I remember this one day I was driving in Aliquippa and just felt so discouraged. Like, are we making any difference here? Is anything happening here? And then you just know Christians are talking about you behind your back, saying this is stupid, saying they don't understand what you're doing, doubting the choices you've made. You just know that. And then one person said to me one time, you know, you guys have been there three years and there's very little to show for it. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Right? I mean, people will say this stuff once you decide to go on the mission. I remember just feeling so discouraged. I thought, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to pack up, go home. I'm going to be done. And then I just realized God burnt the ships a long time ago. Where else could I go? Crossmont, we've changed a lot in the last 10 years. And, we had, and we've had a wonderful history before that. We've changed a lot in the last 10 years. Many of you are so new to our story here at Crestmont. But I can tell you this, with all of the love in my heart, there is no going back now. We're too far along. We're too far along in the mission. Too far along in valuing God's presence. I can't lead in any other direction. I can't go in any other direction than where God is calling us. So I'd love to burn the ships with you. Amen? And be in this together.